Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. In today's episode, I talk with an expert on global terrorism and Middle East and South Asian security issues, who is also a CIA veteran. But first up, David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. For the past four years, for all the rhetoric from politicians about promoting economic growth, the combined effect of spending and tax policies pursued by local, state, and federal governments has actually been a drag on the growth of the gross domestic product. First, the burst of spending increases and tax cuts from the Obama fiscal stimulus expired. Then came belt tightening at state capitals and city halls, plus across-the-board spending cuts in Washington. The good news, these fiscal headwinds finally are abating. The latest reading from the fiscal impact measure that we calculate here at the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy of Brookings is encouraging. It shows that local, state, and federal fiscal policy was a plus for growth in the second quarter, albeit a small one. As my colleague Louise Shainer puts it, fiscal policy is no longer a source of contraction for the economy, but neither is it a source of strength. State and local governments have added jobs in the past year, but there are fewer people on state and local payrolls than there were four years ago. State and local spending on infrastructure is rising a bit, but it remains well below 2011 levels. The trend at state and local governments, though, is positive for economic growth. The effect of federal spending and the tax and transfer programs on the economy is roughly neutral right now. Washington is neither adding nor subtracting significantly from GDP growth. That's a marked change from the past few years in which federal government policies were actually pulling down growth. But the outlook for federal fiscal policy is increasingly cloudy. The consulting firm Macroeconomic Advisors says that the appropriation bills that Republicans in Congress are writing would, if they were signed into law by President Obama, reduce GDP growth next year by a full percentage point to 1.9%. Now, Democrats in the Senate can block those bills before they get to the president's desk, but an impasse would lead to another confidence-rattling government shutdown this fall, just around the time that Congress needs to revisit the always controversial ceiling on the federal debt. So brace yourself for more talk about how uncertainty in Washington is shaking up consumers and discouraging business investment and hiring. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Thank you, David. My guest today is Bruce Rydell. He is a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project. Bruce retired from the CIA in 2006 after a 30-year career, and he served on the staff of the National Security Council under four presidents and was a deputy assistant secretary of defense for Near East and South Asia. He is the author of numerous books, including What We Won, America's Secret War in Afghanistan, and the forthcoming JFK's Forgotten Crisis, Tibet, the CIA, and the Sino-Indian War, both from the Brookings Institution Press. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm really excited that you're here, and I wanted to have you on for a long time. Let's start, though, with your background. Everyone wants to know, why did you become a CIA officer? Oh, that's pretty simple. Uh, When I was a graduate student at Harvard University, my advisor told me that 12 of his previous 13 students had gone to the CIA, and the 13th had gone to the Senate's Committee on Intelligence. It seemed to me I could either stay at Harvard and accrue a humongous student loan debt or just go directly to the CIA and get it over with. That's what I did. Uh, We could spend the whole podcast on stories about your CIA career, and I'd kind of love to, but uh, I do want to go into other things. But I will refer listeners to a great interview you did last year 
on the show Stand Up with Pete Dominic. It's on Sirius XM Radio, and he asked you a lot of interesting questions about your career. It's fascinating. I recommend people go listen to it. I thoroughly um, enjoyed my career. I was able to uh, not only serve on the analytical side of the agency, but have considerable experience on the operational side of the agency as well. I uh, am very fond of it, but I'm even more fond of working at Brookings today. It seems like it's a great confluence of somebody like yourself who is actually expert in the field, in practice, in government, in operations, and intelligence, and now here you are directing the intelligence project at, at Brookings. It's a wonderful confluence. Let's talk about today's politics as a way into the discussion about terrorism. Uh, and I want to mention what some of the GOP presidential contenders are saying. Um, Rick Santorum said about combating global jihadists, about combating ISIS, he said, quote, we should load our bombers up and bomb them back to the 7th century. And Marco Rubio told an audience that his strategy comes from the movie Taken, where Liam Neeson's character says, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. What do you make of these kind of comments? And isn't that kind of what the Obama administration is already doing? Well, I think there's a natural response of wanting to uh, use force uh, against very dangerous, uh, very ruthless, and very barbaric terrorists. But as you alluded, that's what we've been very good at. Uh, we're actually quite good at the business of finding terrorists, hunting them down, and then eliminating them. And we've been doing it now since 9-11, actually since 1998 when al-Qaeda attacked us the first time. And I think it's safe to say it's not working. Uh, we face more terrorists with more safe havens and more sanctuaries today than we ever faced in the past. We have successfully built up our defenses so that here at home in the United States, we're probably safer than we were a decade ago. But abroad, our terrorist enemy is more numerous, more barbaric, more dangerous than ever before. A strategy that only uses the stick isn't going to work. We have to have a strategy that not only goes after the terrorists, but also seeks to deal with the underlying issues that produce this wave of terrorism. That's easy to say and very, very hard to do. When President Obama came into office six years ago, I think he understood this. And he understood that he had to both use drones and also use diplomacy. Six years later, drones are on steroids and the diplomacy has largely faded out of the picture. So what are some of those underlying issues that are producing today's wave of terrorism? Well, one of them is the failure of governance in the Arab world. Four years ago, we had the Arab Spring, a spontaneous mass movement to change the way government is run in the Middle East, especially in the Arab world. Briefly, it looked like a success, but it turned out to be a failure. And what we've got in replace of it is either failed collapse states like Libya, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, or counter-revolutionary states like Egypt under General Sisi in Saudi Arabia. Neither one are very attractive models. Both are examples of failed governance. Now, there's no American solution to this problem, but sticking with the counter-revolutionaries is a policy that's not going to work. We need to encourage developments in the Arab and Muslim world where democracy, freedom, the rule of law, tolerance 
is promoted, not where it's put on the back burner. A lot of people have said in in American politics, the reason that al-Qaeda attacks us is because they hate our way of life. They hate our freedom. Whereas if you look at some of the reasons you, you point out here, it's issues that are endemic to states in the Arab and Muslim world. Which, which of the two is uh, kind of more correct? You know, Osama bin Laden, before the SEALs delivered justice to him, put it quite nicely, I think. He said, if we, if we hated your way of life, we would have attacked Sweden, not the United States of America. It's American policies over many, many years, decades, that have produced this wellspring of anger against the United States of America. And simply changing whether or not uh, we let um, girls go to school or how people dress in the United States or whether we uh, uh, drink alcohol or not, that's not the issues. It's not our way of life that they're opposed to. It's the policies that we have implemented in the Muslim world, both by Democrats and Republicans, over many, many decades. And how much of that is related to the Arab-Israeli conflict? Without question, it's a major part of it. If you examine the life stories of people like Osama bin Laden or his successor, Ayman Zawahiri, the Egyptian who is now the head of al-Qaeda, it's all about the Israeli conflict. Uh, Ayman Zawahiri got into the business of being a terrorist by helping to be a member of the plot to assassinate Anwar Sadat back in 1981. And the charge against Anwar Sadat was that he had made peace with Israel, a peace that the assassins of Anwar Sadat felt betrayed the Palestinian cause. That's not to say that we should throw Israel under the bus or that we should um, encourage uh, Israel to pursue policies that aren't safe for it. It is to say that it is in the American national interest to find a just, fair, and lasting peace to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict so it stops being a hothouse for nurturing terrorism indefinitely into the future. Speaking of Sadat, and I am going to go back into your career, I, I read somewhere that you were on station when Sadat was assassinated, and you got the uh, portfolio to brief the CIA director, William Casey, on ongoing developments there, and either you or somebody else called it the birth of global jihad at that moment. Definitely. Uh, in 1981, I was the senior Egypt analyst at the CIA, and I had just written a paper on what would happen if Anwar Sadat was assassinated. Needless to say, Casey liked the paper so much the day after that he had the CIA republish it in order to make himself look good with everybody else in the Reagan administration. But in many ways, it was. It was one of the uh, birthmarks of the new global jihad and a very important step in what would become al-Qaeda and in wake the Islamic State. And you've also recently written that the global jihad, the idea of global jihad has never been stronger. I think that's right. I think, unfortunately, due to the failure of the Arab Spring, uh, the jihadists now make the case that, you know, we tried Twitter, we tried social media, we tried mass demonstrations, we tried the rule of law, and it didn't work. And the only solution, therefore, in the jihadist argument, in the al-Qaeda argument, is jihad that trying compromise failed. Now we have to go back to the sword. Now, I'm not trying to convince you that that's a good idea. I think it's a terrible idea. But I think it's safe to say that for 
angry young Arabs, it's a pretty persuasive argument today. So let's turn our attention to Islamic State. Uh, it has declared this uh, caliphate. It, it actually operationally controls a lot of cities in Syria and Iraq, and also it's extending its tentacles into other countries, uh, I think including maybe Afghanistan and Libya. Is the Islamic State a direct threat to the United States? The Islamic State, uh, which is a metamorphosis of al-Qaeda, is a direct threat to the United States already in the region. Uh, it's already murdered American citizens it took uh, hostage. Whether it will be a direct threat to the American homeland remains to be seen. But I think it's likely. The ideology, uh, the narrative of Islamic State is the ideology and narrative of al-Qaeda. And sooner or later, they're going to want and demonstrate that they are even better than their predecessors and that they can attack inside the United States of America. They've already demonstrated they can inspire Americans to carry out isolated acts of violence. But I think in time, they will also seek to carry out a direct attack in the United States. Right. The isolated one uh, that we're thinking of is perhaps the shooting in Garland, which is extra scary for me. My, my niece lives very close to that. There's, there's a very dangerous cocktail here. In any country, you're going to have a certain number of uh, frustrated, angry people who are looking for an answer. Uh, and Islamic State uh, and al-Qaeda provide a simple answer. But in most countries, it's not that easy to get a gun to go out and shoot up a church a movie theater. Uh, in the United States, it's very easy to get a gun. Uh, when you look at, say, Australia, which has also been victimized by jihadist-influenced individuals, they try to do it with a knife. Uh, it's a lot harder to create mass murder with a knife, but with a semi-automatic weapon, it's easy. Right. So you, you uh, mentioned that Islamic State is trying to show that it can outdo al-Qaeda. So are al-Qaeda and the Islamic State rivals? And if they're rivals, kind of what does that mean for the fight against them? They are very much rivals. A good way to think of it is they're both fighting for being the legitimate heir to Osama bin Laden. Both the old al-Qaeda and the new Islamic State see themselves as the heir in our time to Osama bin Laden beforehand. That rivalry is most intense in places where they both share territory, like Syria, uh, like Yemen. Um, the further you get away from there, though, and particularly when we're thinking about something in the United States or in Western Europe, that rivalry probably matters less and less uh, to the individual terrorist or terrorist wannabe in Paris or, say, Boston, the arguments between Islamic State and al-Qaeda are theoretical. And I think there we're more likely to see cooperation, even collusion, in the future between these various groups. Right. And it certainly doesn't matter to the victims of their violence uh, in pretty much it anywhere. makes no difference. Uh, one thing that I, I think people have a hard time trying to understand is in in the violence that's perpetrated by these groups, so many of the victims are fellow Muslims. Why is that? Well, Al-Qaeda has always killed more Muslims than it kills Americans. Go back to the very first attack by Al-Qaeda 
in August 1998 on the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Far more Africans were killed than Americans. Mostly it's the, it's the mechanisms they use. Car bombs, indiscriminate shooting, suicide bombings, and the fact that most of their attacks are carried out in the Muslim world. That's why many, many more of their targets are Muslims. Now, from their standpoint, many of those Muslims they regard as uh, betrayers of the faith, uh, as not true Muslims, as even infidels. Uh, of course, that's ridiculous. They are actually killing their fellow Muslims. In the long run, the more we can point a spotlight on that, the more we can keep the ideology and narrative that we want to favor on the fact that these people are really mass murderers of fellow Muslims, the more likely we're going to prevail in the struggle against Islamic State and al-Qaeda. And that goes back to what you alluded to earlier in terms of the soft power tools to fight these groups. Exactly. We are very good at the hard power tools. Sooner or later, we'll find you. The soft power tools seem to be something that have just uh, been allowed to disintegrate over the last several years. Now, why do you think that is? Because obviously uh, the Obama administration, they've been in office for six years. They have a lot of um, good advisors. There's a lot of ideas coming in. It's, they've kind of got the hard power piece right. What does it take to get the soft power piece right? The, getting the soft power piece right is not about what social media you choose or what your Twitter handle is. It's about the policies you pursue. And those are hard. Uh, this administration has understood from day one, for example, the importance of the Palestinian issue. The president has devoted a lot of time to that issue. But he doesn't have much to show for it. And as a consequence, the jihadist argument that the Americans aren't really doing anything for the Palestinians and that they actually are quite comfortable with the status quo is the argument that that young Arabs and young Muslims see. Soft power works only if you pursue policies which demonstrably address the argument of the enemy. And we're having a hard time doing that. I think the Iran nuclear accord is an opportunity for us to demonstrate a, a different narrative now, that we are prepared to engage with a major Muslim state and we are prepared to engage with its concerns about policy. But I think we're going, to, we're going to have to do a lot more than just that. And let's talk about the destabilization, say, on the Arabian Peninsula. You're our foremost expert on Saudi Arabian politics, Arabian Peninsula politics. You followed the succession of the Arabian royal family very closely. Now Saudi Arabia finds itself on one side of what looks like a, a civil war in Yemen that has all kinds of consequences, both for Yemenis and the region. What, what are some of those consequences? Well, I've been following Saudi Arabia since the late 1970s. I was the author of the CIA's national intelligence estimate on Saudi Arabia in 1979 after the fall of the Shah. Uh, it's a hobby for me in, in many ways. Uh, the war in Yemen is a terrible tragedy today. Uh, 25 million Yemenis are at risk. The Saudis have imposed an air and sea blockade on the country. This is a country that normally imports 90% of its food. It is one of the driest countries in the world. There's very little uh, fresh water. Uh, we're facing a humanitarian catastrophe very soon there. 
we, we've already seen it, but it's going to get worse and worse. The international community needs to do more about this, and the United States needs to lead on it. I think that the um, tendency has been to try to uh, appease the Saudis, uh, let them do what they want to do in Yemen because we need them in other places. I think that's a mistake. We need to uh, urge all parties, not just the Yemeni parties, uh, but the Saudis and their coalition partners to accept an immediate unconditional ceasefire and to allow massive humanitarian aid to flow into the country. Otherwise, I fear in 60 days or so, we're going to be looking at one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in the 21st century. That should be impetus enough, in my view, for U.S. leadership of a, of a way to stop the crisis. But what are, what are the sort of security implications of that kind of humanitarian crisis for the region and for the world? Well, we're going to see more and more Yemenis who are turning to jihadism. We're already seeing in Yemen today that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the group that has tried to attack the United States several times, including most famously on Christmas Day 2009, has carved out its own safe haven, its own sanctuary in the eastern part of the country, um, in what's called the Hadramut. Uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula there is operating largely without any constraints other than occasional American drone strikes. I think we're going to see the Houthi movement, the Zaidi Shia movement, which is the main opposition to Saudi Arabia uh, in Yemen, become increasingly radicalized. Uh, before the war, they flirted with the Iranians. I think when this war is over, they're going to be fully partners with the Iranians. They're going to want Iran on their side. So I think the geopolitical dimensions of this are as dangerous as the humanitarian dimensions of this. And now Saudi Arabia itself then isn't safe from this instability. And also, I believe Islamic State is trying to undermine uh, the Saudi Arabian monarchy. There's no question there's an Islamic State underground in Saudi Arabia today. They've already carried out a number of attacks on uh, Shia mosques in the country. They've attacked uh, Saudi security individuals. And they were responsible for the attack on a mosque in Kuwait uh, late last month as well. Uh, yes, there's an Islamic State presence inside the kingdom. And the kingdom is going through uh, a, a succession process. Uh, the kingdom has been governed ever since 1953 by the sons of the founder of the modern kingdom, King Abdulaziz. Well, his sons have reached the end. It's, it worked. It was a great system for a long time, but it came with a built-in sell-by date, and we're reaching the sell-by date, and the Saudis are now trying to transition to the next generation. Very, very difficult to do because the legitimacy of the king for the last half century or more has all been that they were sons of the founder. Now we're trying to transition to the grandsons and even the great-grandsons of the founder, and that's a transition that is not simple to do in an absolute monarchy. I think a lot of Americans also wonder sometimes why are why is our government uh, friends, if you will, in quotes, with the Saudi Arabian monarchy when that country doesn't allow women to drive and women to vote, and it just seems like a kind of a repressive. Um, Arab Muslim state. Why, why has the U.S. government and the Saudi government always been so close? The U.S.-Saudi relationship is the oldest alliance we have with a country in the, in the Middle East. It goes back to 1945. And it's built around a very simple bargain. American security support in, re in return for Saudi oil and for Saudi support in keeping the 
oil of the Middle East flowing at reasonable prices. That bargain is an old one. It's a bargain that still matters to the United States. Even though we're less dependent upon imported oil, the global economy is dependent upon Middle East oil. And as we've learned over time, if the Chinese economy tanks or the European economy or Japanese economy tanks, it has an impact on Americans. So that old bargain is still there. The problem is it was never based on any shared values. We don't have any shared values with Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're an absolute monarchy named after a family. Uh, we're a democracy that prides itself on allowing people to say whatever ridiculous thing they want to say and whatever smart thing they want to say. We're a country that prides ourselves on tolerance of religious diversity. Saudi Arabia is intolerant to anything other than their brand of Islam. This is a very difficult problem to, to, to get your head wrapped around because we still need Saudi support for cheap energy. And it's very difficult to tell an absolute monarchy to reform itself. Absolute monarchies don't usually reform. They end up in revolutions. Um, I think the Obama administration has tilted a little bit too far towards being Saudi Arabia's best friend. And I think it needs to do a little bit of a rebalancing here. What country or group in the world scares you the most? Oh, I think the most dangerous situation in the world remains the uh, India-Pakistan situation. India and Pakistan have fought four wars. Uh, these are not nuclear wannabes like Iran. Uh, these are nuclear weapon states. Uh, the crisis, we've seen repeated crises between uh, India and Pakistan. 1999 Kargil War, 2002, the attack on the Indian parliament. 2008, the attack on Mumbai. Sooner or later, there will be another crisis between India and Pakistan. And the world will have to hope that smart heads and cool tempers prevail. Uh, but hope is not a policy. Uh, we need to encourage India and Pakistan uh, to address the issues that divide them, particularly Kashmir. But American diplomacy has put Kashmir, like the Palestinian problem, in the too hard category most of the time. And I think that's, that's the one that worries me more than any other. But to exacerbate that interstate tension, you have Afghanistan, you have the Taliban, and then you have al-Qaeda, and now you have Islamic State seeking inroads into South Asia. You have a multitude of terrorist organizations uh, who have an interest in encouraging an Indo-Pakistani conflict. Uh, you mentioned some of them. There's also the group Lashkar-e-Taiba, the group that attacked Mumbai in 2008, which is patronized by the Pakistani intelligence service. Uh, we need a, a policy in South Asia that seeks to encourage India and Pakistan to work together against these groups. Again, that's easy to say and very, very hard to do. We've discovered over many, many decades that India-Pakistan is in many ways a zero-sum game. If you're on one side, you're automatically the enemy of the other. But creative diplomacy, effective narrative, soft power, all those kinds of things I think can be used. President Obama has developed an excellent relationship with Prime Minister Modi, and he needs to use that relationship in the next year and a half while he's still in office to encourage Modi to reach out to Pakistan to try to have a dialogue with his Pakistani counterpart. And I don't pretend to read every single piece of Brookings content when it comes out. I hope to say I eventually do. But especially for these podcast interviews, I read a lot of 
the guests' pieces. And so I read a lot of your stuff from last year. And one of the things I learned that really scared the hell out of me was one of these terrorist groups was trying to steal a Pakistani Navy uh, ship armed with surface-to-surface, surface-to-surface missiles and was going to attack a U.S. Uh, Navy ship, maybe an aircraft carrier. That's right. That was al-Qaeda. Uh, this was uh, the last major terrorist operation that we can link directly to Ayman Zawahiri and the al-Qaeda group. Uh, they came up with the idea of hijacking a Pakistani frigate, uh, the Pakistani ship Zulfikar, uh, with the intent of taking it out into the Indian Ocean and attacking an American carrier battle group. Now, there's a lot of things you can say about this. Maybe it was fantastical. How, how were they going to hijack an entire frigate? Yeah, operate it. And operate it. But one thing it surely was, was audacious. This was a very audacious plot. And it demonstrates that al-Qaeda, despite all the blows we've inflicted on it, and we have inflicted many, many blows on it, remains a thinking, learning, and dangerous adversary, which is not interested in simply one or two suicide bombings or killing a couple of French cartoon writers. They're thinking about plots that are world-changing plots like the 9-11 plot. It's, it's all extremely scary stuff. The, the, the material that you put on paper is scary enough. I can't even imagine the things that you know that you can't put on paper based on your, your uh, career. How do you deal with that when you're not wanting to think about it? How do you relax and get away from it? Oh, that's not that hard to do. I mean, I'm uh, spend time with my dog, spend time with my family, and I like to read history. I enjoy reading history. And uh, one of the things that I've, I love about working at the Brookings Institution is they, they also value history. So um, the book I wrote on Afghanistan, What We Won, is a historical sketch of why we won the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And the book that's going to be coming out this fall, JFK's Forgotten Crisis, is about how the Kennedy administration handled both the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we all know about, and a crisis in the Himalayas, the Chinese invasion of India back in 1962. Those two crises took place simultaneously. What this book does that none has done before is say, yes, Kennedy's performance in the Caribbean was brilliant, but did you realize he was also dealing with the two biggest countries in the world fighting a land war at the same time? If John F. Kennedy deserves lots of credit for ending the Cuban Missile Crisis in a way that didn't lead to nuclear Armageddon, he deserves even more for doing not just that, but multitasking and bringing about an end to the Chinese invasion of India at the same time. I did not know that. Thank you, Bruce, for joining me today.